Good morning, Cornerstone. My name is Iris, and I will be doing the scripture reading for today, which comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If not, you can just follow along on the screen. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say, from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say, from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The word of the Lord. It is a blessing to be with you again in this fashion, Cornerstone family, and may God's glory be known. You know, I remember when I was a child growing up and my family would go to Iowa to visit our farming relatives every summer pretty much, uh, I was labeled by them as a city boy. Now, it was not meant to be a negative label, it was just reality because uh, I was from the city, according to them, and I was pretty clueless about, you know, the farm life and farm animals. So when I was with them, especially when I was really young and, uh, you know, I'd be growing and maturing every time I saw them, but they would, I would hang out with them and they would explain, you know, what they were doing and why they would be doing it as they did their chores or their work around the farm. And I thought it was so exciting because it was so different than anything in my life as from the suburbs uh, of near Boston. I grew up in Massachusetts. So my cousins would always look out for me uh, and make sure I didn't get hurt or uh, I knew what to do when I was with them. And I remember when I was in elementary school, my cousin and I uh, climbed on a fence uh, that surrounded this pig pen and we would go from the fence and jump onto the back of these very large pigs that must have weighed like 250 to 300 pounds each. I mean, large sows, they call them. Um, they were huge. And we would try to ride them as far as we can because once they felt us on their backs, they would take off running. And then we would ride them and see how far we could before we fell off. Now, after doing that 
course, we didn't smell very nice because pigs roll around and everything. And, uh, and of course, when we fell off, we fell off into the pig pen and whatever was on the ground there. And so uh, my grandmother did not like us doing that. But over the years, uh, as I went every summer, I learned more. I picked up things about farm life and I became more knowledgeable. And the label of city boy uh, was used less and less in reference to me. Uh, and one of the things I learned about, but never had any interest in trying, was bull riding. My cousin, uh, Brian, who was my age, uh, he, when he was in high school and in college age, he rode bulls uh, as a sport, really. It's a rodeo sport. It's actually a professional rodeo sport. And it, I would go to these rodeos when we'd visit, uh, and he would be in some kind of competition. And it was so exciting to watch my cousin get on the back of these bulls that weighed on average 1,800 to 2,000 pounds. Um, they're huge. And, and he would try to ride on the back of the bull. And to see someone you know put themselves at risk like that uh, is pretty exciting <laughs> to watch, though pretty nerve-wracking, because people get hurt all the time. Now, the way this works is the rider of the bull mounts the bull when it's in a riding chute. Um, so it's very tightly contained, so the bull can't buck or anything. So the person will sit on the back of the bull, and there'll be this rope tied around the bull. And so there's, they put their hand, one of their hands, left or right hand, around that rope so they have something to grip on, hang on to the bull. And then when they're ready, they will give a nod, and the chute from the side door will open. And the bull will just charge out into the arena and start bucking and twisting and jumping, trying to get that rider off his back. And the, and the rider needs to stay on the back of the bull for at least eight seconds uh, before they get off. And uh, people are often seriously hurt in bull riding, you can imagine. So uh, this bull riding idea comes from the Mexican ranching skills. Uh, and was a time, it was a tame version of bullfighting, if you've ever watched bullfighting in the Spanish context and that culture. And people in those days used to ride the bulls until they stopped bucking. So they, you, they did this to tame the bulls, uh, showing who's, mas who's master over the bull. Because that's the struggle here, right? And this is the image here that I'm, why I'm telling you this, is that it's showing who's in authority. The rider or the bull. They're both fighting for a mastery over each other. So the rider tries to stand the bull to show who's boss. And the bull is bucking and turning and trying to get free of the rider to show that he's boss. Or, yeah, he's boss. And so this image is an image of how we often respond to God's authority. Right? We often try to buck and twist and turn and shake to get ourselves out from underneath God's authority in so many different ways. You know, our text deals with the authority of Jesus being questioned. And Jesus here in our text in Luke chapter 20 is at the end of his ministry. He's in the last week of his life. Uh, earlier before this text, uh, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and being greeted by the whole city as a coming king. It was exciting 
for his followers at that point. You see, the people of Jerusalem and people of Israel in general had high hopes that the Messiah, that Jesus himself, would lead them uh, against Rome and occupation. So they, they overthrow Rome and free them of that, that um, oppression of the Romans. And then after Jesus came into Jerusalem, that city, he went to the temple and he cleared out the temple area courts because uh, of the money changers and those who were selling animals for sacrifice. I mean, he turned over tables and he did all that. And, and this act really angered the chief priests and the scribes. So they looked for a way to get rid of Jesus, to kill him. And then one day, our text starts in verse 1, that Jesus was in the temple area teaching people. He was confronted by, and we see the chief priests and the scribes with the elders. Now to understand the importance of this group, these were the men who made up what was known as the Sanhedrin, and which is simply a group of leaders that would be like the um, Supreme Court of ancient Israel. And they said to Jesus in verse 2, Tell us why, I mean, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. You see, their purpose was to force Jesus to admit that he really did not have any authority to do the things that he did. And the Sanhedrin claimed it was the authority in Jerusalem, the religious authority. I mean, the Romans still had the ultimate authority at that point. But in religious matters, they were the, the authority. Now, who gave Jesus authority to ride into Jerusalem like that as a king and to clear the temple like he did? Who gave him this authority? They had not given Jesus this authority, definitely. And so they were upset. Now, the Greek word that's in the original text of, the, this, of Luke that's translated for the word authority means to have the freedom, the right, the power to do something. So this word, this Greek word, combines two ideas. It's having the right and the might to do, to act on something. And so Jesus used, we see this same word in the Greek, when he said the very famous Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Verse 18, he said to his disciples, and this is after his resurrection, when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This authority, the right and might. And so here, back in our text in Luke chapter 20, Jesus demonstrated his authority in two ways in response to these religious leaders. And the first way we see Jesus demonstrating his authority is the way he responded with a question. And this was ingenious of Jesus. The use of counter questions was common in the, the rabbinical ways, you know, in the sense of these religious leaders, they often would question with a question, uh, answer, uh, respond to a question with a question. But the way Jesus responded here uh, was unusual because in that he made his answer to their question dependent on their answer to his question. In verses 3 and 4, we see this. Jesus answered them. He said, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven 
or from man. Now, Jesus was referring to John the Baptist and his ministry of baptizing people who wanted to repent of their sins and follow and obey the Lord God in their lives. Now, the phrase that Jesus uses here, and it's translated as, now tell me, uh, that is an imperative, meaning a command. So Jesus is responding to their question by commanding them, uh, demanding them a response to his question from these leaders. In a sense, he wants them to commit, one way or the other, how they viewed John the Baptist and his ministry. Now, the clear implication here is of Jesus' question to them, is that John's the Baptist's ministry was divinely uh, authorized. If And therefore, if John's the Baptist, if they admit that John the Baptist's ministry is divinely uh, authorized, then if, if John's message had God's approval, then Jesus and his message also had God's approval because and divine authority because John's uh, inspired confirmation of Jesus when he uh, and Jesus met, you know, when Jesus was baptized. So the religious officials immediately recognized their dilemma. They were stuck between a rock and a hard place in their own minds. They did not believe that John was a prophet of God. No way. But they dared not say so publicly because the people, most of the people believed that John was a prophet. So if they publicly said, nah, you know, John's ministry was not from God, uh, they would have a violent reaction of the crowds. So they didn't want to say that. But nor in the present situation could they admit that John's baptism was from heaven because Jesus then would rebuke them for not repenting themselves and being baptized uh, in repentance by John. So the only way out, even though it was not a good one, was to confess this inability to decide. So the answer, you know, Jesus, we don't know. Um, and what they did not realize, I think, was that such inability to answer this question, this religious question, um, disqualified them from having the authority to be religious authorities in, in this way. Um, for example, have you ever known someone who often responds to your questions with the statement, I don't know, you, you know anybody like that? Because that answer, I don't know, discredits them from, and, and at least in our view, from ever going to ask them to be a source on this subject, right? So if we ask somebody on a subject and they say, I don't know, then we're not going to go back to them and ask anything on that subject. It disqualifies them because they don't know anything, right? Uh, I'll give you an example from my own life. May and I, when we were first married, uh, it was soon after we were married, May realized uh, Whenever she asked me certain things, I often would respond with this answer. I don't know. And it drove her nuts. But May has the gift of discernment. So in a short time of this response of mine, she realized that I was not being truthful. I mean, because I often did know something about what she was asking me. I just didn't want to take responsibility uh, in answering what little I knew. And so I... I would rather have her, you know, just 
take the responsibility and figure it out herself rather than me entering in and trying to offer some, some part answer. And so I, I learned through this uh, struggle of ours uh, and learning about myself that I need to take responsibility for what I do know. And so now I answer instead, I'm not sure, and then offer up what little I know or whatever I know on the subject. You see, the religious leaders in Jesus' day answered Jesus' question by, I, we don't know. And even though they did know, they just didn't want to say. Jesus not only demonstrated his authority by how he dealt with these religious leaders and their question, but also at the same time, amazingly, he discredited their authority as religious leaders. He's a genius. And so Jesus then refused to answer their question on by whose authority he did these things. You know, he came out on top in that way. And then secondly, Jesus demonstrated his authority and his identity uh, as God's son by telling the parable, this parable, the story of the wicked tenants. So the rest of our text in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18, Jesus tells the story of a man who planted a vineyard. And then after he plants a vineyard and it gets mature, the owner rents this vineyard out to some local farmers and then went to live in another country, we're told. Now, at harvest time, he sent a servant of his, a representative, to the tenants to collect some of the fruit from the harvest uh, that the vineyard produced. And we could say that could be as like rent for their use of his vineyard. And so far, this story would not have uh, been anything out of the ordinary for those listening to Jesus. They would have been very familiar with every aspect of this story, but it would have definitely caught their attention because of the symbolism that Jesus is using here. Now, when Jesus spoke of a vineyard, the, the Jews or any Jew at that time would have immediately thought of passages in the Hebrew scriptures uh, where Israel is portrayed as God's vineyard. And the owner, therefore, in their minds, would have been God. And the vineyard itself is Israel. And the farmers are Israel's leaders. And the servants that the uh, owner sends are uh, the, the prophets of that day to, from God to Israel, including, in this sense, John the Baptist, who bring a message from the owner to those who are renting the vineyard, right? The leaders of Israel. And then we, we can also then say the beloved son of the owner is Jesus, right? So therefore, Jesus, in this story, declared himself, his identity, as God's son. Now, if Jesus is God's son, then he has every right to interfere with anything going on in the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, as God's son, he is the authority when it comes to worshiping God. He's God the son, right? He has a right and a might to interfere because he is the son of the living God. And that is why he has the right to interfere in our lives too. He's not just a good man and he's not just a good prophet. He is God's only begotten Son. He is God in the flesh. He is Lord of all. 
He has the authority, the power, the right, and the might to rule. Now, owners have responsibility and ultimate authority over their property, no matter who rents the property. And May and I have had lots of experience as renters uh, early on in our marriage. And I remember one place we rented in Irvine, California. And the first week we lived there, we had just moved in, um, the dishwasher we found out did not work. So I called the owner of the property and I told him the dishwasher doesn't work. And he said, he responded right away. He said, I just bought it. It's brand new. You must have done something to it to break it. So he blamed us. <clears throat> for the reason why the dishwasher didn't work. Well, I argued with him. I said, we never used it. We just got here. How could we break it? You know, I just tried to turn it on. It didn't work. And so he still wouldn't believe us. He thought it was our fault. We were being tricksy to him, you know. So um, <clears throat> because of God's arranging uh, connections, we had a, the phone number of the previous renter. And so we kind of connected. He was moving out. We were moving in. We had a conversation and so um, I think we <clears throat> bought a rug from him or something. I can't remember. May would remember those details. But I had his phone number. So I called him up and I asked him, so you were there for two years. Did you ever uh, find any problems with the dishwasher? He said, I never used the dishwasher. I mean, it was installed when he just moved in and he never used it once. He never turned it on once. And so I told the landowner that and obviously... He had to admit that, okay, there's some problem and he fixed it. But you see, there always will be conflict, either when the owner does not want to take responsibility for his property, or when the renters reject the authority of the owner. And in the rest of Jesus' parable, the story we hear of three ways the tenants, the renters, reject the owner's authority. And these often are the same ways that God authority is rejected in our lives. So when we look at these three ways, think of yourself. I will think of myself. As, are, am I rejecting God's authority in a similar way? So the first way was that the tenants, the first way that the tenants rejected the owner's authority was to, to uh, in response to his call to produce fruit. And the owner sent, we see, servants to collect as Luke 20 verses 10 and through 12 say, when the time came, he sent his servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, this one also, they wounded and cast out. Now remember the symbolism here. Jesus was accusing Israel's leaders of shamefully treating God's servants and rejecting God's call to live righteously and with justice. You know, Jesus taught on another occasion that's using this symbolism of vineyard in John 15, verses 5 and verse 8, saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. See, the fruit we bear in our lives is evidence that 
God, that Jesus Christ dwells within us, that his spirit resides in our hearts. And therefore, then we live for Jesus, giving him glory in all that we do. And when we reject God's call to bear fruit for him and for his kingdom, we act like these evil tenants in this parable that Jesus is telling in Luke 20. See, the question really is, is our life bearing fruit for God and his kingdom? Or are we bearing fruit for our own selves, for our kingdom, we could say, for our, our lives only? And then, therefore, rejecting God's ownership. So finally, in the story that Jesus is telling, Luke 20, the owner of the vineyard sends his own son whom he loved. And then Luke uh, 20, 13, and 14 revealed then this second way that the tenants reject the owner's authority. It says there, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. The tenants claimed as their own what was really the owner's. Their plan was to keep for themselves what wasn't really theirs. And this was the way they were living, actually, the whole time, right? They were refusing to pay rent. You don't pay rent on something you think you own, right? Then the ultimate rejection of the owner's authority was the rejection and murder of the owner's son. And this verse 15 says, And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now, a piece of land could be acquired by its occupants if no living person claimed ownership. The tenants must have assumed that the son had come to them because the father was dead. So if they killed the son, there would be no one to claim ownership. So they, the vineyard could be theirs and their twisted thinking, and they could claim it as their own. Now, this is exactly what happens when we reject God's authority in our lives and claim our lives as our own to do what, what we want to do. We think that we can live like we own our lives, that we're in control of our lives. We act thinking only of ourselves, and even to the point where we may hurt others around us in the decisions we make. See, today's text in Luke is about Jesus having the rightful authority as opposed to the religious leaders of his day. He had the authority and he demonstrated that he had this authority to them. But this passage is also about you and me. The religious leaders thought they were the final authority and they even used that authority to enrich themselves. We often live as the final authority in our lives to the damage of our Christian witness. By what authority do you do the things you do? By whose authority do you decide where to live? What to study? What, what degree to pursue? By whose authority do you decide what job to take and what job not to take? By whose authority do you decide who will be your friends, who to hang out with? By whose authority do you decide who to marry, uh, who to serve, 
and who not to serve, or how much money to give, how generous to be, or by whose authority do you decide what to do in, uh, during retirement, and how will you use those last years of your life? See, the vineyard God has given is our lives. We are only the tenants of our lives and our church community, in our neighborhoods, in our nation. We're just tenants. All of this is his, and especially our lives. We produce fruit for Jesus, not for ourselves. This is why we exist, to bring God glory, to worship him by doing so. For example, when we hear uh, the announcement, a very specific example, there's an announcement to sign up for a summer life group, right? What do we think of usually, each of us, when we hear this announcement? You know, sign up for a summer life group. You know, uh, we usually think of ourselves when we hear an announcement like that. It's asking us to, to respond, to do something, to commit to something. We think first and foremost if we want to commit to a weekly fellowship, a weekly commitment throughout the summer, right? It might get in the way of our summer plans that we have for ourselves. Do we think this will actually help us? Or maybe it won't. We don't feel, we don't see the real benefit of it. And yet this is not the purpose of the life groups. The life groups, the purpose of our, is for our community to walk through life together as a community, encouraging each other and spurring one another on and following Jesus as Lord. So really our participation in a life group is beneficial for the others in the group, as well as hopefully somewhat beneficial for ourselves. And if we only think of ourselves and what we get or don't get out of it, then we are like the wicked tenants because we think we're in control of our own lives and it's just for ourselves and we live just by what benefits us and not others, especially in the family of God. We have to rid ourselves of this um, we see our lives, we need to see and understand as followers of Jesus, our lives are under his authority and alone because our lives are not our own. They are his. We are tenants of God's vineyard, not the owners. And it is by God's authority we serve in his vineyard, the vineyard of our lives. And then we harvest the fruit that our, the vineyard produces by the grace of God. But if we buck his authority, it will not go well for us in the end. No, because God will end up rejecting us because we have practically rejected him. And when we do so, that just shows our heart is not with him. Until you and I receive God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his authority over our lives as Lord and as Savior, until we receive him like that, we will try to live holding on to what is not ours. And that is what much of the conflict in the world is all about. I mean, you look at Israel and Palestine, the Gaza Strip today, right? There's this fight, this ongoing fight, because each claims that they own this, this part of the world. And they will fight each other over that. Everybody wants and thinks and claims something as their own when it actually all belongs to the Lord God. 
Earlier in Luke chapter 9, verse 24, Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And we save it because we lose our lives that are not ours anyway. They're the Lord God. So when we lose it for his sake, we're not losing it. <laughs> it's already his. That's the reality of it. But if we try to hold on to it for our own sake, then we'll lose it ultimately because God will reject us because we rejected him and his authority. By what authority do you live your life? By whose authority? I pray that each of us as followers of Jesus will continue to understand that our lives, every area of our lives are under his authority. Our lives are not our own. We're just the renters of this life. Let's pray together. Lord, we acknowledge that you are God, creator and Lord of this universe, ruler, king of kings and Lord of lords. You are the only real and true God. All other gods are false, made up by man. Lord, we worship you. We pray that we would mature in our relationship with you, Lord Jesus as we trust in and follow you in the everyday stuff of life. We confess our sin, but we know we are redeemed and forgiven and enabled to do what is right when we follow you. And so glorify yourself in us, Lord. Help us to make more disciples, point people to you as Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Brothers and sisters, we'll see you next week.